Welcome to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. Back when I was 12, my mother took me to a bar called Crest Tavern. It was connected to Crest Liquor. And she took me because, as a school project, myself, Nick Economitis, and John Corsiniti were going to interview an Eagles quarterback named Mike Barilla. Well, I later just found out the other week that my friend's family owned that bar, and he said they had all these little footballs that Mike autographed. And all I know is I talked to John, and I talked to Nick, and they said we asked a whole bunch of questions, and I said, you know what? That was my first interview, and as you know, I've done so many interviews, and I said, I got to get Mike Rowe on my show. So I reached out to him. I went through LinkedIn. I found him, and here we have it. We have Mike Barilla. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing pretty good, Coop. I'm so glad to be with you once again. And I'm glad to see that you have matured and you remained a talk show interviewer all these 47 years. So I, I, I think that's a credible story that you interviewed me when I was uh, when you were 12. I must have been uh, probably my second year with Philadelphia, and they did so many cool things back then. I actually one of the cool things they did with young people was. I played football with a Heisman Trophy winner named John Capaletti, uh, who dedicated his uh, Heisman Trophy winner to his brother, who was, uh, I think, about 12 years old, too. Uh, and, uh, and they did a movie about him. And uh, my third year, it was so cool, but they brought his brother in. One of his last wishes was to come into an Eagles locker room so they brought him into the locker room after one of our games, and he sat uh, next to my. They put him right next to me the whole time, and I was able to, you know, give him a football, ask him questions, and they used to do really cool stuff like that. The Eagles did. You know, I want. I, we have a lot to talk about, and you know, the, the disappearing quarterback. You know, it's funny because the back it says it's not. It's not a murder mystery, but in the press release for that. You talked about all the injuries you had, and I just want to go, I want you to go over some of the injuries for my listeners, because, you know, we watch football, and, and you definitely played in a different time. It was a lot more brutal. And you sit there, and you, you hear about it, and, and I read that how you had left, um, and it was the best decision you made, but what were some of the injuries? Because you only, I mean, you played since you were a kid, but you only played in the pros for like five years. What were some of the injuries you suffered in that time? Okay, I had three concussions. Now, please remember, I played football back in the day when they called a concussion getting dinged. And I still remember my Eagles coach after my worst concussion uh, taking me into his, his office and telling me, Mike, it's no big deal, you just got dinged. You know, uh, Coop, in football, they use these tough, warlike terms like attack blitz the shotgun but whenever you had a concussion they made it sound like you just won big in bingo <laughs> so uh i had three concussions i had uh ended up having uh let's see two broken noses i ended up having three nose surges surgeries due due to these, these football uh, injuries. And then I had a mouth surgery to remove a cyst 
uh, formed in my mouth by getting hit by a linebacker. And then I also had a stomach surgery. Uh, I had uh, three torn knee ligaments. I had five uh, golden rings. No, five uh, knee surgeries, including my most recent ones, which were uh, two artificial knee surgeries, uh, which were 3D printed by an artificially intelligent robot over in Switzerland from CAT scans of my real knees. I had 60 stitches in various places on my my face. And uh, I think I'm forgetting a few other injuries. But anyway, recently I noticed something as I uh, went through the uh, uh, airport, I the titanium in my legs sets off <laughs> alarms <laughs> when I go through the uh, airport metal detectors uh, at, at the airport. And uh, so uh, then I also have, uh, I've been diagnosed with something called post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and which I'm handling it very well in that I, I can remember incredible fun things about my career, football career, but I just don't remember the games very well at all. In fact, I, I can hardly remember the games at all because not only did I, uh, was I high level quarterback, but from third grade all the way through my five years in pro football, including my years at Stanford, I called my own plays. And that was a lot of pressure to be in. And I think that pressure just pretty much blanked my memory during the actual games. But I remember things pretty well. And one of the things I wrote about in, in, in the cover, the back cover of, of my book is, uh, and I wrote that, by the way, three months ago, that I have 12 teammates that are deader than doornails like Marley in A Christmas Carol. And I just read that again this morning and I realized but I wrote that three months ago, and now if I was writing it, it would be 15. I have 15 friends and uh, former teammates that are dead. And uh, most of the teammates uh, uh, that have died have died from a word that uh, the NFL will not let you say on TV, and they, they died of CTE. It's chronic traumatic encephalopathy is what it's uh, known as CTE, and the uh, it's killing a lot a lot of football players. So you know, first of all, when when you were playing, and of course people didn't know like now players know more because the injuries and stuff have come forefront. Like as you said, a lot of your friends have passed away, which I'm sorry about. When you were playing, though, what was it that made you get back on the field when you got hurt? Was it your love of the game, or is it because you were so good at what you did that you just wanted to keep doing it? I mean, it's it must have been a struggle for you because you end up leaving your career early. But but with those first few injuries, you know, did were you pressured to go back in the games, or did you just say, "I got to get back in there because I'm a warrior"? Uh, no, they they didn't pressure me at all because. When I, for example, when I had uh, concussions, I uh, would uh, 
uh, typically, and I talked about this in the play, I typically would black out for 15 minutes. And one particular time I uh, threw a 20-yard pass completion while I was blacked out. And when I went into film studies the, the following Monday, I, I couldn't remember it at all. But what would happen when I would uh, uh, get a concussion? I'd black out for about 15 minutes, and then I would wake up on the bench, and I would be crying hysterically when I woke up, okay? And this was with the Philadelphia Eagles. And they would put a, a big, heavy coat around me so the cameras couldn't see me seeing the quarterback crying like he was a baby. And, and then they would start asking me things, you know, like, I remember going, what's, what's a name? What are you talking about? I, I didn't know what a name was. And I would be looking around and I'd go, what kind of building is this? There's no roof on it. And as I would start finally waking, waking up, they would let me get up and kind of walk around the field. Okay. Not the field, but the sidelines. And, uh, and I talk about it in the play. On my third, which was my worst concussion, they put this coat around me. And when I was on the sidelines waking up from this phrase, I saw one of my teammates get not totally unconscious. Okay? He was a kick returner, and he got clotheslined around the neck, and he fell on the ground, and he didn't move. And he didn't move for like 10 minutes, and they finally brought out a stretcher, and he still was not moving. They put him on the stretcher, and they took him out of the arena, and apparently they took him into uh, directly to the hot emergency room uh, in, an, in an ambulance to have tests because he was completely unconscious, okay? My mother was watching this live on TV, back in Denver, this was against the St. Louis Cardinals in St. Louis. And the announcer who has his spotter has these uh, uh, binoculars was looking on the, the, the sidelines and they couldn't see a number 10 quarterback. And so they had heard that I had a concussion. And so mistakenly, they told the TV audience that Mike Barilla had a concussion and was being rushed by ambulance to the emergency room for tests. My sister got a hold of me later that evening and said, Mike, you have to quit football because mom cried for three hours because we couldn't find you in the emergency room anywhere in St. Louis. And she thought you died. And so and I remember telling my sister, Karen, it's no big deal. I just got dinged. Yeah. <laughs> what were you? What but were anyway, you? so no, they didn't pressure me. And I know it sounds weird when you hear the injuries I've had, but I actually had a very injury-free career compared to all my friends. <laughs> I mean, I, I had nowhere near the number of surgeries that my friends had. And I, I actually had a pretty healthy career. Now, I want to ask you, I know your father was an NBA player, and well, what was your mother like? Because you, you got the, because you're also a writer. Did you get the writing skills from your mother? Sure, you got the athleticism, I'm guessing, from your father. But what were your parents like when you were growing up? 
well, my dad was a, uh, a psychopath. Okay. He was a former head coach for the New York Knicks, former all pole player for the, the, uh, uh, New York Knicks. My mom was the biggest influence of my life. She was a nurse from Ogallala, Nebraska. And I don't know what she did, but it was like she put a little pin uh, on my heart and said, you're going to be like me, except in a man's body. And so my mom was the biggest influence. Uh, I became, uh, actually, I was an intellectual, not really, a, uh, even though I was this world-class athlete, uh, she enrolled me in uh, great books, great books in seventh and eighth grade. And I became a lifelong long reader. And my mom was always referring me great books. My, uh, I was just talking about it with one of my rookie teammates. When I was at uh, Philadelphia, I always was reading two books at a time. And the newspaper writers uh, uh, wrote articles about being, being this incredible intellectual reading Russian novels. And I, I asked this one writer, I go, why are you pegging me like this, this incredible intellectual, you know, why are you doing that? And he goes, Mike, I've been going on the Eagles planes for 10 years, and you're the first guy that I've ever seen read a book. All the other ones were reading comic books and Sports Illustrated and Playboy magazine. He goes, you're the only one reading a book. So all of a sudden, I got this reputation of, of an intellectual. But actually, I probably was an intellectual compared to the other people. And this acting ability that I have, uh, it came from the fact that I started, my discussed it with my artistic director, uh, being, being raised by someone like my father, I started acting as a little boy and hiding my real personality behind a mask. So consequently, when I had to perform an 80-man, one-man play, it was, it was a piece of cake uh, compared to performing in front of uh, you know, half a dozen of my, my father's alcoholic friends. Now, when you were growing up, when did you know that your talent was above the others? Because you think about it, you know, we, we all played sports when we were younger, and there's that one kid who really stands out, but he never makes pros. Then you, you're playing, you end up, you know, you're all pack eight, uh, in, and you make the senior bowl in, at Stanford, then you go into the NFL. When, at what level did people start saying, damn, man, this Mike Barilla is a really good quarterback? Well, actually, what happened to me, and it was kind of embarrassing to me, it really kind of bothered me. Uh, it happened to me at Regis. I went to a all-boys Catholic school here in Colorado called Regis High School. And oddly enough, my next-door neighbor was the top TV sports newscaster in the state. His name was Star Yellen. And... He literally gave me as much uh, airtime as some of the Denver Broncos. And here I was in high school. And, uh, you know, he would actually even announce to his – and I was an All-State basketball player. I was an All-State basketball player and an All-State football player, and I was the Gold Helmet, Denver Post Gold Helmet Award winner uh, uh, here in Denver. And he would actually announce to his audience every Friday night how many points Mikey Barilla scored in the basketball game. So 
obviously after my high school career there in Colorado, I was the most hated guy in Colorado. <laughs> Everybody hated me, you know, because I was I was getting all this publicity. I was actually was the most highly publicized, and not through my efforts, just because of Star Yacht, the most highly publicized high school athlete probably in the history of the state of Colorado up to that time. And I went to a high school where uh, they had never passed the ball before, okay? And I had this coach, Dick Teratano. He just let me in. He goes, Mike, you throw as much as you want to. And the first game I played in, which was my junior year, the, he, he put in me the last game of the season and pulled out this 5'9 option quarterback that couldn't throw and said, Mike, I'm putting in a wide receiver at the wide receiver, and, and you throw as much as you want. This is my junior year. And uh, the wide receiver that put in, and I think set the Regis High School season record for receiving in one game. And uh, I think I set the uh, Regis High School season record for passing in that one game too. But I found out that something was different about me in high school. And then I went to Stanford and I actually went there on a basketball scholarship and asked them to let me play football, which was pretty stupid of me. I didn't realize how dangerous it was. And I became a Playboy Magazine All-American at Stanford. Now, when you're leaving Stanford, what's it like when there's a draft? I know you were drafted, I believe, by the Bengals. Do you, did you know you were going to get drafted? It's not like now where you can watch it on all the channels and there's social media. No, you're probably just sitting there. You're probably lost. Like, oh, am I going to get drafted? What was it like for you? What was draft night like for you? Well, here's what happened was I played uh, an all-star game, the North-South Arsenal game, with a head coach named Mike McCormick. Uh, and he uh, was the head coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. And I loved him. I, I thought he was great. And he, he loved me. And he said, Mike, I'm going to, you know, uh, he let me know what he was thinking about, about drafting me. At that particular year was the year that this World Football League came out. And I was drafted by the New York Stars in the World Football League. And these jerks, I never even talked to them. I was not going to play with them. But they put out a rumor the day of the draft that they had signed Mike Perilla to a million-dollar contract. And so I was in this house in California listening to the draft on a radio and going, oh, no. They said they were going to draft me in the first round. They didn't draft me. And finally, Coach McCormick got a hold of me in the fourth round on the phone. And he said, Mike, did you sign with the, the, the New York Stars? And I go, no, I've never even talked to them. I'm not going to play for them. And he goes, okay, we're going to draft you in the fourth round. And so what happened was the Cincinnati Bengals drafted me right before they had the pick. And so... Later on, uh, the, the Philadelphia Eagles traded away to a first-round draft pick and a fourth-round draft pick for the rights for me. Now, I know, you know, in one of the things you sent me, you talked about your early childhood experience was when you were in Philly watching the Knicks play. And so it was very, you know, you had the fans who were just crazy. But what was it like for you when you came into Philly as a pro athlete because I've been a lifelong fan of the Eagles. And, you know, I, when I lived in L.A., people would be like, oh, the Philly fans are awful. And I'm like, no, we're good people. Was it, was it intimidating when you're sitting there going into the vet 
and you hear all this stuff about the fans. What's it like for a young guy? Well, I don't know where I got this, Coop, but when I went to Philadelphia, maybe I got it from my mom. For some reason, I thought that football was a game. It was a sport. And then I got to Philadelphia, and I realized, no, it's a religion. (laughs) I go, what is going on here? But the people were so nice. They were so nice to me. Everybody couldn't have been nicer. They were the nicest people in the world. I had, Because of that, I had this place in my heart for Philadelphia, and that's why I went back there to do my one-man play there. They were wonderful people, but, you know, honestly, I thought they were something wacky about them because they took football way too serious. And I, I literally thought it was a game, but obviously in football it's not. It's life or death, and it's, it's a religion. And uh, so... Uh, I enjoyed it immensely, and uh, but it w- I was my second year. Just to let you know, I had applied for law school my second year. Okay, and I got accepted into New York Law School in New York in the off season, and I had paid my tuition, had gotten my books, and then I got a phone call from the uh, uh, general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles and said, uh, told me to come by and pick up my uniform because I had just been selected to play in the Pro Bowl. <laughs> so I, 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 I drove up to New York to the law school. I, I met with the dean. I go, don't cash that check, I, that tuition, <laughs> and here's your books. I, I got to go back and play in, in uh, the Pro Bowl. And so then I flew down to uh, uh, New Orleans and got MVP in the Pro Bowl. But honestly, it, it's entirely possible that if I would have gone to law school that year, that offseason, you know, I maybe, eh, possible I maybe wouldn't have come back the following year. Now, what made you want to go to law school? Because a lot of people who are athletes, they've hit that level. They're a pro football player. You know, the conditioning and everything and just the mental anguish you know then taking on law school is even more mentally draining i mean as a young you're a young person who is a pro football player what made you look in your mind what made you decide i I want to be a lawyer i mean were you planning to play a little longer or were you going to say this is what i can become a lawyer later i mean what made you at that that moment decide to go to law school well i was an intellectual like i said i went to stanford and i thought a pro football was just going to be a i didn't think that was going to be my life work i just thought it was something i would do for a few years before i went to law school okay and so uh that's the kind of guy i was i i'm i'm not one of these die hard play football until you die kind of guys honestly i can't stand those guys and i stay away from them and uh so but i i did go down i played three years at philadelphia i played two years at Tampa Bay and uh, I started law school right after my, my last year at Tampa Bay uh, at Stetson Law School in Florida. I graduated to a, number two in my law school class and then I went back to Denver University in Denver and got a master's degree in taxation. And I, I practiced sophisticated business international tax law for about 25 years. 
Now, quick question when you mentioned the Pro Bowl. What's the Barilla special? Okay, Barilla special, this was the funnest part of the Pro Bowl. They let the two quarterbacks put in their favorite play. And my favorite play, and they would name they named it after me. My favorite play was the Barilla special. And here's the deal. It was a fake running play to the fullback off the left side. Then the wide receiver in the slot formation would come around, and I would fake a reverse to that guy. And then my left tackle, who was my roommate, Stan Walters, would yell at the top of his voice, reverse, reverse, reverse. And then that was hopefully to get that offside linebacker to go with the wide receiver. And then the slot receiver, who in the Pro Bowl was uh, uh, Metcalf, Terry Metcalf, would do a flatten up. And then if it worked correctly, the uh, linebacker would be chasing him down the, the field. And then I would uh, throw kind of a rainbow pass, which put a little uh, uh, little air underneath the pass and hit the, uh, 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 the, the, the uh, halfback on a flatten up for a touchdown. And typically... It would work for a touchdown every time that I did it in Philadelphia. And it worked for a touchdown uh, when I was at the Pro Bowl. So when your career ends, as you said, you already you, you had the idea you were going to the law, but it was your need. It, was it easy for you to walk away? Because you, I, you seem, you know, you, you've, you've said that you didn't look as football as your long-term plan like so many people are. But it, it must sometimes be hard to walk away from, you know, the, the 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 cheers the the crowd I mean it's that it's that life I mean was it hard for you to walk away when you did? Actually, I was so excited to be finished with it. My law in law school was one of the funnest periods in my life. I loved going to law school. I loved being out of football. Uh, but you're right. What happens is uh, a lot of these quarterbacks get addicted to the attention and the applause and literally they cannot quit and see i have seen it with the older quarterbacks that i played with when they retired they report they they approached retirement like they did like they would death i mean they looked at it like the end of their lives and for a lot of the guys so many of the guys that I, I i played with they never do anything else. They just go to celebrity golf tournaments for the rest of their lives and just drink at celebrity golf tournaments. But I had all sorts of other things I wanted to do, and I was so excited to be through with, with pro football. The other thing that have helped me so much is that, and I mentioned this in my play, uh, my favorite professor, uh, Father Bakewell, and uh, Father Bakewell uh, taught me four years of Latin and four years of uh, religion at Regis. And I was thinking about him when I, when I left pro football because I left a huge amount of money on the table. I had, I had 12 more years of deferred payments coming in. If I just played two more years, I would have had like 15 years of deferred payments coming in. I'd never have to work. And I wasn't excited about that at all. But I started thinking about Father Bakewell. Father Bakewell, a uh, big influence in not only me, but my whole class, was 
the uh, heir, millionaire heir, to Bethlehem Steel. And he took a vow of poverty to teach us at Regis High School. And so when I was thinking about quitting, and the Lord told me to quit, to leave and not look back, and I, I just thought, Mike, it, life is not about money. Father Bakewell, he gave up all his money. It's not about money. It's just about, you know, doing what the Lord wants you to do. And the Lord told me to, to leave and not look back. And he, so that's what I did. Now, it's, it's pretty fascinating because, you know, you, you leave an NFL career and you go, you become a lawyer. Both very hard things to do. You can then become a taxation lawyer, you know, with international law. So when does your writing come in? Because, you know, you've written a book. I'm going to talk about your writing the book. But when when does that all come into the thing? Because most people would say, you know what? I've been a football I've been a quarterback in the NFL. And I've been a successful lawyer. I, I've, I've done enough in life. I, I think I've done well for myself. When did the writing pop in for you? It's, uh, about 10 years ago when I got away from my dad. Uh, uh, I made my decision. I was never going to see him again and never uh, uh, be around him again. And out of nowhere, uh, I started writing three weeks later. And the odd thing about what happened to me is I started writing musicals. (laughs) Musicals, the hardest thing in the world. (laughs) And so when I sent my first uh, three musicals to Ray, he goes, Ray Dittinger, that's writer in Philadelphia, goes, oh, my God, I am. So uh, I started writing musicals. I had a writing block all my life that I was aware of at, at Stanford. And as soon as I got away from my dad, I started writing. I started writing three weeks later. I started writing uh, actually uh, three months before my 60th birthday. And when I started writing, the first things I wrote, they weren't junky. I mean, I, I would read these things. I go, God, this sounds like Shakespeare. It just came out incredibly well. For some reason, not writing was a nemesis that I had of, of my life for about 40 years. When I got away from my dad, that influence, I just started writing like Shakespeare. And the stuff I, this latest thing that I wrote, I've written five things in the, the Disappearing Quarterback series. I've written the one-man play. I've, uh, I, I, I wrote... Uh, a, a musical before the one-man play called uh, QB. Then I wrote the Disappearing Quarterback. And then uh, I wrote a, a another version, uh, three, four. And this latest one, the uh, case of the Disappearing Quarterback, I feel is my best best version. Is It is the fifth version of my Disappearing Quarterback series. Now, now and, you mentioned you mentioned writer's block. I got a question for you because I've written before and I my past I was a touring stand up comedian for eight years and and you know you would feel like you have writer's block and for me it was it wasn't that I couldn't write it's what I wrote I didn't think was good enough or it wasn't funny. How did your writer's block affect you? You just didn't write at all, or when you looked at the paper you didn't think it was good. Uh, I couldn't write at all. I would I, I, no as an attorney I could draft contracts. I was very good at cut and paste and drafting contacts, but I couldn't write creative at all. It would just come out like junk. It just wouldn't make sense. And I had one time my sophomore year, I still remember it. I had this one writer friend of mine as a communication major as a, was an expert writer at Stanford. Uh, look at, and I go, can you help me with my writing for this writing class? And she looked at my stuff. She goes, Mike, I'm sorry. It's so bad. I can't, <laughs> I can't help you. 
<laughs> I knew it. I knew she was right. I said, <laughs> the way I feel, it's just horrible. So I don't know what it was, but I, it, I'm so thankful it went away because it, when it went away, uh, it certainly, and also I was very shy when I was young, and the shyness went away too, which is one of the things I, when I talk to young people, I tell them the, the shyness and the, the fear that I had of public speaking. You know, I remember when I was at Stanford my freshman year that I read a study about uh, people who have fears of public speaking, and they all, they all rate uh, public speaking, number one, fear, and number two is death. And I remember when I read that, I go, that's me. And I, I took a public speaking class my freshman year. I went to a friend of mine. I go, Pat, will you take this with me? And he goes, yeah, I'll take it with me. And I started to get rid of the, the public speaking uh, phobia. And you can get rid of that. And I took me 40 years, though, to get rid of the writing block. Now, when you first, I know you brought your show to Philly. When you started writing that play, the one-man play, which is also, you know, people don't understand that's a very hard write because you have to keep the audience entertained, and it's you. It's not like there's dialogue. Everything's you. When you decided to write that play, did you have it in your mind that you were going to perform it too, or were you just doing it to write at the time? How did it end up going from you writing it to you getting it on stage? Oh, no. I wasn't going to do it. I, I, I uh, tracked down my stand-up comedian friend uh, who nicknamed me Young Buck at Stanford, Roger Rod, who also, when I contacted him, he's the only other person in the United States to have written and performed his own one-man football play called Footsteps. So I flew out to, uh, I wrote the first, I wrote the first draft and I sent it out to Roger and I said, I'm flying out to uh, Hollywood and I rented a hotel that had a stage there. And, and I said, I want you to perform uh, this for me and, and let me take a look at it. Because I also been told by my artistic director that all playwrights have to see their their play first to make corrections to it so i, I went there and uh and he uh uh i had this room really gorgeous room set up and uh, i had a, a stage for him and and we went out for coffee uh beforehand and, and then we went there to there and and i sat down okay roger you've got the script you've had a study for a while and he and he just looked at me goes okay mike Here's the deal. I'm not going to perform your one-man play. I would love to. I would love to perform it. But your fans in Philadelphia don't want you to want me on stage. They want you. And so I'm giving you your first acting lesson for you to perform your one-man play. And I sat there for two hours. And he went through the whole thing with the emotional beats. He would go, he would act something out, and then he'd change the emotional beat. Okay, now we're in panic and, and, uh, and do the emotional beat for panic. He goes, now we're in pride. Okay, now we're in happy. Okay, now we're in sadness. You know, he would do all the emotional beats, and he performed it. He only got through the first half in two and a half hours. 
And at the end of the two and a half hours, he goes, Mike, uh, uh, I think you get the idea, right? He goes, I go, and he, go, he goes, are you ready for dinner? I go, yeah, let's go out. I'll, I'll buy you a prime rib. And we went out and have, had, a, had a dinner. And I was sitting there, and, 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 and Roger talked to me. He goes, Mike, I, I don't want to kid you, but, you know, they did interview Sidney Portier, the top actor of my generation. Do you know who he is? Sidney Portier. And he goes, they asked him, goes, how come you never did a one-man play? He, they asked Sidney Portier, he goes, I didn't do it because I didn't think I could do it. It's way too hard. He goes, I'm not kidding you that it's, uh, it's going to be easy. And I and see, he saw me play at Stanford. I go, Roger, you saw me play at Stanford. And he goes, and I go, do you think I can do this? Mike, he just looked at me, goes, Mike, I have no, I, no doubt in my mind that you can do it. And as soon as Roger told me that, you know, I didn't have any doubt either. From then on, I was going to perform it. Now, did you, did you start taking acting classes? Did you start rehearsing at home? How did you get in the, get in that mode? Because once again, it's not as easy as people sound as it sounds, but how did you start getting ready to act? Did you just start practicing or how did you get there? Three years before I started studying the uh, top acting coach over in Paris, the Stanislavski method acting coach. And I started studying Stanislavski method acting three years before. So I had, had studied, I knew about method acting during my stage when I was getting ready uh, for my one-man play, and I'll tell people what they can do to get ready, I, I performed uh, the top, uh, top method actors of the generation before me uh, was uh, Marlon Brando. And so I got his famous scene uh, from Streetcar Named Desire, and I watched, watched him act in Streetcar Named Desire. It became a movie. And I, I, I performed a scene, uh, it's a very famous scene from Streetcar Named Desire, about a hundred times. And I, I had people come to my house. I would actually, it's, this, it's the very famous Hey Stella scene. Right. Stella! Uh, and where he has a nervous breakdown. And, and I, I would wear this, I had the same t-shirt and I would actually start crying and I break down in front of the, uh, you know, the audience there in my house. And I performed it a hundred times. So I did that a hundred times. I also studied a, who I feel is a great uh, method actress. And that is a Glenn Close. And she performed, and she performed it. She's not a good singer. She performed one of my favorite songs. Uh, and it's called uh, Send in the Clowns. And she performed it at Carnegie Hall. And I performed that song, Send in the Clowns, by uh, Glenn Close, I don't know, about 50 times. All the eye expressions, the hand expressions that made it into my uh, one-man play. And what she did, she, she made the pass. She looked to the left, and the past was over the last, and the future was to the right. And I did the same thing with my play. I, I performed uh, Send in the Clowns uh, probably about 50 times. And those, those, those things became part of my, my repertoire. And then Daniel Student gave me acting lessons, 
And then Roger gave me some more acting lessons as well. Now, when you bring the show, when you do the show in Philly, you know, well, did it open in Philly or did it open out in Denver first? I had two runs in Philly. Uh, they, they've never done it before. They invited me back a second time. I did 20 performances the first run and then 20 the second in the same year. Well, the first night you get on stage to do it, you've been a quarterback and you've been in front of a huge audience. I don't. I, I would think that you're accustomed to that. Was it was it easy? I mean, was there a similarity between taking control of a football game and taking control on the stage of a group of people? I had three one man play actors who who have uh, helped me. All three of them said the same thing. Okay, one performed a one man play about Karl Marx two hundred thirty times. All three of them said the same thing. You being a top notch quarterback who called your own plays is perfect training for it to be a a one-man play stage actor i still remember uh three days before the world premiere when roger when our t- uh daniel student came up to me and he goes he was the whole the whole the whole uh, uh 15 member crew was there and he goes mike it's okay to be scared to death and i looked at him i said scared to death what are you talking about who goes? Well, you got the uh, your world premiere, and all these reviewers are going to be there. It's okay if you're scared to death. And I go, I'm not scared to death. Because I'm not even going to be nervous uh, for my world premiere. And he looked at me, goes, "You're not." And I go, "No, I was never nervous in football either, and I'm not going to be nervous now." He got disgusted and walked away and didn't talk to me again because he was sick to his stomach about what he thought the reviewers were going to do to me. He was so sick that the world premiere, he came to my uh, uh, dressing room about five minutes before, and he looked like he was about ready to die. He goes, Mike, I don't feel very good, and I'm not going to be able to see this play. I'm just <laughs> I'm just sick. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> just goes, break a leg and he just walked off so he didn't even see my thing because he was just a nervous wreck and the reviewers just loved it so no i wasn't nervous a bit you're right i was a quarterback i was the center of attention since i was in third grade i called my own plays third to eighth grade i paul called them in high school i called them at stanford Called them in Philadelphia, called them in Tampa. I'd been used to being in the limelight. I kind of got used to it. And so when I started uh, performing my plays, I remember I told uh, Ray Dittinger, uh, he, he did an interview of me on the stage. I go, What I like about the uh, theater, Ray, is that uh, there's a three feet between, uh, I'm up on the stage, you know, you're up on the stage, three feet between you and the audience. I go, What that means to me is that. The audience can't blitz me. <laughs> and he started laughing. He goes, I want the people out there to know that we are going to have snowball detectors <laughs> when they come in. Because I still remember what you guys did to Santa Claus. Now, now okay, so the play. But now, now tell me about your other book, Mark of the Beast. And you, you oh, wrote boy. that, you, you know, uh, you sent me it, and, and the car- main character is Young Buck, which you already said was your nickname. You wrote this a few years, what, seven years ago? 
I wrote it seven years ago. And everything started to happen that I wrote about. So I had all these people say, Mike, you got to release it. And so what I decided to do, I had a friend of mine turn it into an audio book. So it's not available as a written book. It's available as an audio book. It's only two and a half hours, and people can, can listen to it. And it's a Bible prophecy book. All the things, not all the things, but most of the things I talked about in there have started to happen. And uh, if, you, uh, if you want to be scared to death, here's, here's the deal with that. If you listen to it, I've had people listen to it. And I've had people, after they listen to it, come to me and say, Mike, you're the best writer I've ever, I've ever in the United States. And then I have this other group that never, <laughs> never talks to me again. <laughs> I'm serious. There's no middle ground with this. They either want to kill me, and they're so mad because I scared the daylights out of them, or they think I'm kind of the new Shakespeare. What's the premise of the book? The premises of the book is that uh, the mark of the beast is a uh, vaccine with an RFID chip in it. And the RFID chip is uh, put in there to be put into 3 billion people and that they will have a 3 billion uh, person uh, uh, satanic ritual sacrifice and eliminate 3 billion people on the planet. And this particular guy, Young Buck and his family, refuses to take the, the vaccine. And so they go on the lamb and they're hiding out in the uh, Grand Canyon on a, uh, in a cave uh, that is uh, uh, 60 feet below the east rim and uh, 280 feet above the Grand Canyon in a cave and where nobody can find them. So, because if they, they find out you didn't take the, uh, once you do not take the mark of the beast, there's a warrant issued for your uh, arrest. Now, so you wrote that book, and then you have the case of the disappearing quarterback, and you've written musicals. Where do you get the most satisfaction of writing? What is there a personal favorite for you that you like, or is it when you wake up in a certain creative mood, you decide to focus on a certain area? This book, uh, the the case of the disappearing quarterback, is is the most fun I've ever had writing a book. Uh, this is the best thing I've written. What made it so uh, fun? Um, my wife. Uh, Annie is one of the main characters in it, and uh, she and I uh, were. She went to St. Francis High School in 1969, which was just down the street from Regis High School in, in, in 1969. And I used to go to uh, St. Francis dances, but I never met her, and I didn't meet her till 12 years later. And my mom told me to. Uh, uh, um, marry a nurse and have boys and Annie's a 40 year emergency room nurse and we have four boys and so I, I put her as a major character the only thing I did dip, instead of meeting her when I was 32 I had had me meet her our, six, our senior year and so she's a ma major character when I started writing about 1969 our senior year 1969 was an iconic year Things changed on the planet 
So I wanted to make a a uh, a fifty percent of the book is about uh, uh, Regis High School in nineteen sixty nine. Twenty five percent is about my weekend uh, at the uh, Playboy Club in, in Chicago for the photo shoot, and then twenty five percent is about what things were like being a quarterback at Philadelphia. So it's kind of a trilogy with the main focus as a coming of age and how a young man uh, remained obedient to God throughout his, throughout his life. Now, I got to ask you, what are like two of your NFL career highlights? What would you say are two of your big highlights, like two good stories, two good, good highlights? My NFL highlights... You've heard about the uh, the Pro Bowl. That had to be one of them. Uh, <laughs> one of my highlights, I know this is going to sound weird, but my rookie year, my roommate put me in charge of the rookie show. And he's, I still remember him going, Mike, it better be good. <laughs> Because the entire coaching staff is going to be there. And this is the first time they've ever been invited. So I spent a week writing it. It was an hour and a half long. I had rehearsals. I had a set designer. I had a sound designer. I I wrote the whole thing. It, It was literally the first play that I ever wrote. And I talk about it in, in the play. Uh, the highlight, of course, of my rookie show, and I talk about it in my one-man play, The Disappearing Quarterback, was my best friend, Frank, uh, was the finale of the rookie show where uh, Frank uh, was, uh, uh, his performance there was uh, mooning the audience. (laughs) So I was his voice. During during his his mooning, and he had Fergie's jersey wrapped around him, and Fergie's uh, uh, face painted on his backside. And so I, I remember that rookie show as being one of my favorite memories. And I remember after doing it, I had put so much effort into it. I was really sad that I had to go back to playing football. And I started thinking, well, maybe I can have some type of job where I just fly around the NFL and have rookies help them perform their their own uh, rookie shows. But it was an hour and a half long, and uh, Roman Gabriel said it was the best rookie show he had ever seen, and he had been to 14 of them. Well, that's awesome. That was one of my favorite. Uh, my other favorite memory is that my roommate was uh, Stan Walters. He was our left offensive tackle. He was from Syracuse, and he lived right across from uh, uh, Broadway, uh, right where New York Giants Stadium is today. And he was obsessed with this Broadway play that came out. It was called Pippin. Okay, he loved it. And he loved it so much that every Saturday night in his underwear, he would sing to me the, the uh, landmark song in there called Corner of the Sky. 
And he would have eagles, pretend like he was an eagle, and then pretend like he was a river. And I, I, I listened to him for five weeks do that. So finally, after the fifth week, he kept telling me, you know, Mike, you got to go see this play. And I go, I finally said, okay, Stan, if I go to this, will you promise that you will never sing that song again? He goes, yeah, if you go to it, I'll never sing that song. And so I was used to Broadway. I used to go to Broadway plays with my mom. And they would always be packed. We'd always be up on the balcony. There'd be 5,000 people out of these things. So I went there on a, on a Tuesday afternoon at 1. I, I remember going on the stage going, are there any tickets left? And they looked at me, tickets? You can sit anywhere you want to. I go, oh, I can? Yeah, this is Tuesday at 1 o'clock. And so he goes, well, where's the best seat in the house? And they go, 12th row in the middle. And so I sat in the 12th row in the middle. We got a chance to see Ben Vereen at the height of his athletic ability playing the leading of character. And I think it was William Hurt uh, saying Corner of the Sky. And I, it blew me away. I kept, I kept that, I bought the soundtrack, kept it uh, with me until I got back to Denver and my pro career was over. And I bought this uh, DVD and I was constantly watching the play and I, I had it backwards and forwards. And so that is why when I started writing, I started writing musicals. My first musical about QB was, I was thinking of calling it Pippin goes to the NFL. <laughs> and that's what I was thinking. I was thinking this QB character. No, it's Pippin. And in every, you know, and I think of my first seven musicals, musicals, five of them had Corner of the Sky in them. In I had Joseph from the book of Genesis singing Corner of the Sky. That's awesome, man. Uh, Mike, I really want to talk. I want to thank you for coming on. It was good to get to talk to you after all these years. What's in your future? What's in the mic? Are you, are you writing more? I mean, what's, what's going on? Because you have a lot of stuff going on. Well, what's going on is uh, Jude Pago, a uh, a uh, movie producer has uh, picked up the case of the disappearing quarterback. He's working on a, 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 a screenplay right now for a movie with a friend of mine from Stanford, Roscoe Tanner, uh, who's a real good friend of mine. And uh, as soon as they raise financing for that, he and I are then going to start uh, working on the uh, – uh, he thinks uh, my case of the disappearing quarterback should be a, a five-part uh, Netflix TV series, and uh, he wants me to be the executive producer. So I will be the executive producer, and we will start working on that as soon as he raised the funds for uh, Roscoe's Tanner's uh, screenplay called Service. Well, that's awesome. And so, so uh, hopefully I'm going to be a executive producer here uh, next round. That's good, man. You've done a lot, and it's it's great to talk to you. People, uh, how can people get in touch with you? My uh, email is disappearingquarterback at gmail dot com. So people, go go look up uh, my. It's just crazy that it's all these years later. And people, go to my website coopertalk.net. You can find over nine hundred and twenty five episodes. Email me cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk One. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, 
and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.